So hello and welcome to the inoculation. We are back after our holiday break. And this week we have a really interesting interview about disinformation. My name is Eva von Schaper. listeners welcome to the podcast we're ready to jump right into our topic of today okay let's go i was on vacation this is quite unfair and you talked to our guest last week can you tell me who that was and maybe in a second step what the interview was about yeah so i had a very interesting interview with Tommaso Canetta, who leads this team of fact checkers and we have a fact checking network in different countries, pretty much cover the whole of the EU. And they try to see and publish different trends and disinformation that they find in the bank. So did he introduce himself so that we can get an idea of who he is? I am uh, Tommaso Canetta. I am the deputy director of Pagella Politica and Facta News, the two main Italian fact-checking outlets. I coordinated the fact-checking activities of the European Digital Media Observatory, ADMO, and I am a member of the governance body of the European Fact-Checking Standard Network. So he is based in Italy as well, or where is he based? Yes, he's based in Milan. Mm -hmm. And he coordinates these kind of fact-checking initiatives and his reports. And is it a government initiative or is it an EU initiative? Or is this a private person? Yeah, so this is a network of newsrooms. It's, a, it's an independent observatory. It's called EDMO, the European Digital Media Observatory. And they bring together academic researchers, journalists, and media literacy practitioners. That sounds quite interesting. And was there one thing that you found the most surprising about this interview? There were several things that he mentioned. So, for example, he noticed in his work that uh, people who are radicalized into anti-vaccine narratives got so attached to it, it became such a major part of their identity that they don't move on uh, to other topics the way most disinformation actors do. So they keep trying to generate new disinformation to prove that they've always been right. So they stay with it. Even though you would think that people are talking less about COVID. I find this very interesting because I always thought that the conspiracy theories were recycled and just bits were recycled and then the conspiracy theorists would move on. But it seems like these people are staying. So did he give you an idea of how many people these are or if it's a majority or are they based in Europe? He mentioned that... Overall, in Europe, people with these views are a small minority. It's just that it's a visible minority because they generate so much output. But he said that he's not sure that in, whether in some countries they're such a tiny minority. And he mentioned uh, Bulgaria, for example, where these views are much more widespread and accordingly vaccination rates are lower. And it's just a reminder that some countries 
we're in a completely different place with these struggles and maybe it's worth linking this episode that we did with our colleague Kvina Boras about Romania that also struggled with low vaccination rates and the mm-hmm. high take-up of skepticism, mm-hmm. though it wasn't necessarily anti-vaccine views, but there was a very high level of skepticism. Okay. If you want to just listen to what he told you? Yes. Let's listen. In. I think that the pandemic created a very important fracture inside the the public opinions and the societies where the minority of anti-vaxxers or skeptical or no mask, that kind of movements, they were very much polarized and they are now some, in a way, a a form of extremism. And uh, um, I think that probably there is some still existing sensitivity of, I don't know, a sentiment of revenge. So they, now that the pandemic is over, they want to still demonstrate that they were the one being right. The Swedish model was better than the Italian model. Not having lockdowns was the right thing to do. And yet you imposed lockdown on us. And these people, they still want to believe that they were right. And this is the reason why I think there is still a production and a consumption, of course, of false news about the vaccinations. And that's quite surprising. What else did he say that was new or might be new to our listeners? I was interested in hearing about Italy and his insight, specifically on the Italian anti-vaccination movement. And he had a few comments on this kind of stance that we saw Elsewhere in the Southern Europe, notably in Portugal, that right-wing political parties are, no, we're not into that, but they're critical, so to say, that's how they presented themselves. They're skeptical. They don't like what the government is doing, and they try to propose something else. And this way they plug into this segment of the population that is mobilized against vaccination. So we can hear what he had to say about it. In Italy, at least, we have some political parties, one in particular, the Lega of Salvini, that it's winking to the um, conspiracy theorist communities, to the to anti-vaxxers communities. And they basically gained their trust and their votes during the pandemic, and now they don't want to lose it. For example, now in Italy, there is a whole debate about canceling the fines that were given to the people that had to vaccinate and didn't vaccinate. This is just an example. So his view is that the current right-wing government in Italy was just lucky that pandemic numbers were going down, so they didn't have to face these difficult decisions that any government would have faced some time before that's all we can hear about as well but they are also lucky that the pandemic has basically ended before they went into power so they are managing the now the consequences but it's not a big issue anymore in Italy so yes there is still this as I said before this vengeance feeling 
of the anti-vaxxers community that is mostly looked at by Lega, Salvini's Lega, and the other government parties, Fratelli d'Italia and Berlusconi's party, Forza Italia, they are not so much, let's say, polarized about this specific issue. But one thing I'm interested in, so he still says, or this still, the general flow of disinformation is still from Russian disinformation actors downwards. So nothing has really changed about that. It's still the case, but it's the more elections we have and the more new national trends we have, the more complex this disinformation scene is becoming in that sense. Interesting. And those, let's, I'm just going to say those more national pieces are coming from disinformation actors who might not necessarily have a direct link to Russia, who are just taking what they see and remixing it. Do we have a clip for that? Can we listen to that? Yes, here it is. Yes, of course. We have this, let's say, detection mechanism, basically, through the briefs where we ask the organizations, how many articles have you published in the previous month? And how many of those articles were about COVID-19 related disinformation, Ukraine related disinformation, climate change related disinformation. For now, these are the three topics that, that we monitor. And so, of course, this is an approximation because we look at the detected disinformation, but still having so many organizations so spread across Europe, I think the degree of approximation is absolutely acceptable. And what we saw, it was that um, basically until the war, the pandemic was absolutely the major disinformation phenomenon in Europe. Then in February, at the end of February, 2022, immediately the disinformation about Ukraine exploded and basically substituted the COVID-19 disinformation as the major phenomenon inside the European Union, detected disinformation, of course. Then the disinformation about Ukraine rapidly declined. So it was around 60% in March. And uh, by the summer, it was around 15%. So it dropped a lot. And uh, after the summer of 2022, basically the um, main topics of disinformation always stayed under 20%, almost always. We have a constant line of disinformation about climate change. We have a constant line of disinformation about Ukraine, every constant line of disinformation about COVID vaccines and COVID-19 in general, but they are not anymore a major phenomenon. Probably because we are outside the exceptional phase, let's say, at least of the perce perception by the public opinions. So right now we have probably more national kind of disinformation from state to state. So focusing on the national politics or national chronicles, if an incident, for example, in Greece, a train accident happened, that is information focused on that accident. Or if we have election in a country, probably this information is focused on the elections and so on. We have this uncategorized disinformation right now that it has, of course, common traits across the countries. For example, we are seeing now a surge of disinformation about migrants, and this is similar in different countries. 
but we have a lot of uncategorized disinformation that is about national, so local issues and not European scale issues. And yes, I think it's because after the two years of exceptional situation with the pandemic, after the beginning of the war, when it was perceived as something exceptional, now the pandemic is considered to be over basically by the public opinions and the war, I think we can say in many countries, except in particular inside European Union, the perception of the war has been like normalized. Wow. That was, uh, okay. That was really interesting. We okay. also talked about AI because we're, this, I think, is an evergreen. And I wanted to, to ask him if fact checkers are already dealing with AI generated disinformation. So let's hear it in the whole world. Yeah. In this, uh, the last edition of our Admo monthly briefs, we'll have a part dedicated to AI generated disinformation. In the questionnaire that we sent to the 42 organizations member of the network, we asked a new question. So you published how many article, fact-checking articles have you published in the previous month? How many of those were about AI-generated disinformation? So we will start monitoring the amount of AI-generated disinformation that the different organizations detect in the different countries. So we will have an idea if this phenomenon will grow a lot in the future. Right now we had very popular examples like the Pope with the white puffy jacket or Trump getting arrested or Putin kissing the hands on his knee of, of Xi Jinping, etc. So these are very, let's say clear cases. It doesn't require a lot of expertise to understand that they are fake, but still the potential evolution of the situation is worrying on one hand and of course exciting on the other one. It's not like technology is always bad. It can do amazing things, but it poses very big risk, especially about this information. And what concerns us the more is not the production of this information in itself, but the, the absence of intermediation. So if you ask Google something, Google will give you a list of results and you can look at the different results and you decide which one you want to click. If you ask an information to chat GPT, it provides you with just one answer. And if you believe that answer is the best answer possible, it's dangerous because sometimes that answer is not the best one possible. Sometimes it contains mistakes or disinformation and so on. And there is no possibility for fact checkers or for others to fact check this information. Okay. So he does think that AI is going to have an impact just because the volume is going to go up and the quality is going to be better the way I understand it. Yes, exactly. He also mentioned that uh, what he also mentioned that platforms are trying to deal with this in a systematic way, but the progress that these platforms are making is quite limited. Okay, can we listen to that? The platforms are not doing enough to fight this information. Well, let's say that Facebook Meta is now 
in the best position among the platforms because at least they have a, a cooperation agreement with fact-checking organizations. That is good. They still need to do better in giving access to data in particular to fact-checkers, but let's say that Meta is doing at least something good. TikTok is doing something little bit less than, not a little bit less than Meta, than Facebook. But at least they have a program to cooperate with fact checkers to fight this information circulating on TikTok. This program can be improved and there are some issues, but at least TikTok is doing something. The other platforms like Google, YouTube, of course, Twitter, Twitter, it's, it's so bad at it's basically doing a favor to the other platforms because everybody is looking at Twitter and forgetting that Google, YouTube, Microsoft, Bing, LinkedIn, they're not doing their part. So the list is long. We have many platforms that didn't deliver what we hoped. And honestly, if it's understandable, at least not justifiable, but understandable that for the first set of reports after six months. So they are monitoring and they're seeing all these things happening. First of all, does the, this European group, and I actually suppose it's no, do they have any kind of power to change things? Do they have any kind of power? Can they take action, for example, against a, a social media platform? That I don't think anyone can do much apart from regulators against the platforms, but they are in discussion so they can bring it to the platform's attention and tell them that people are trusting you less because you haven't done what you promised to do. Did he have any ideas or did you talk about solutions to this problem? But he believes that every user of information or every user of these platforms can take a few steps in their consumption of information to verify what this is about. So he thinks that we should try to make these basic verification tools as accessible and as popular among regular audiences as possible. Let's hear how you said it. Yeah, I, I maybe want to end with a positive note that we, as, as users of information, as citizens, we can do a lot to fight this information with um, minimum effort. We don't have to study for hours and I don't know, to take trainings and courses and I don't know, dedicating a lot of time to fight this information. Just knowing few tricks, for example, how to do a Google image reverse search, it's good just to know that maybe that that image is old and you are looking at an image that say, ah, this is about Ukraine and in, maybe it's from 20 years ago and it was from Chechenia, just to give an example. And so get learning how to use few very basic tools. It's all, 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 of course good, but probably the most important thing that we can do is just having some good critical thinking. So just knowing, and I really experienced this on my skin because I realized I was doing exactly the same. When we hear an information that aligns with our worldview, we 
tend to think that it's true. When we hear an information that opposes our worldview, we think that it's false. And this is basically how our brains function, because we have confirmation bias, we have the laziness of the brain, so we cannot dedicate the maximum of attention to all the issues. We dedicate the maximum of attention to the issues that we think are false, and we dedicate the minimum of attention to the issues that we think are true. So just knowing this, if you look at a news or at a piece of information, a video or an image or everything, and this is absolutely confirming what we already believe, beware of these mechanisms. Just cultivate some critical thinking. And as a general rule, if it's too good or too bad to be true, probably it's not true. That does sound interesting. Did you talk about anything else that you think is interesting or that you think is worth sharing? So speaking of the trends, what they see in their monitoring is that that this information is becoming more sporadic and becoming less aligned across countries. There are more national narratives coming up. So, for example, some countries have the insect conspiracy narrative becoming very prominent as opposed to climate or COVID or war narratives. Can you catch me up on the insect conspiracy narrative? Because I think that's one I missed. So this has to do with the European Commission authorizing the placing of on the market of certain insect-derived products. And conspiracy theorists took this information and ran away with it. And they claim that insects are already in our food. It was the major phenomenon in this information that we detected in January and also it was quite big in February. It was detected basically in all the EU member states, of course, with different intensities. So for example, in Italy, where we are called sometimes food fascist, you can imagine how <laughs> the discussion was heated around eating insects. Oh my God, this is absolutely unacceptable and against our tradition. And uh, yeah, it was declined differently from country to country. I didn't detect much about this purity element, even though I'm pretty sure that there are communities that are very sensitive to this aspect and we see the same about vaccination. So I don't want to have foreign substances inside my body. Maybe this could be similar for insects. So that they are unhealthy. My body is a temple, that kind of, of, of sensitivities and it could be. What we detected, it was an overlap between this EU insects disinformation and pro-Russia against Europe narratives, disinformation narratives, especially in the Baltic states, because over there in, in Russian language circulated disinformation, basically claiming that Europeans are forced to eat insects because they lost all of their crop and wheat due to the sanctions against Russia for the war. So basically we are living such a shitty lives that we need to eat insects to survive. So that was the interview we can wrap up for this week. And we're back to our usual program schedule and we'll see you in two weeks. I see you in two weeks. Thank you for listening. Bye.
in the meantime, you can find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. You can find us individually on Mastodon. And please check our website, www.theinoculation.com for transcripts, extra information, all links, and all the research that we've cited.